2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You ever wonder what happened to QAnon, the baseless and completely bizarre conspiracist movement that posited Donald Trump was fighting a secret war against a shadowy evil cabal engaged in child sex trafficking? Well, Q stopped posting in December 2020. Then, after January 6th, the number of public QAnon adherents seemed to decline. But millions of people had been caught up in this thing. And surely they didn't just disappear, right? And no, they did not. This morning, we follow up on what happened to QAnon with the creators of a Vice documentary series on the phenomenon. But we're gonna start with the Los Gatos City Council. To find out why, stay tuned for Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Los Gatos is a beautiful place. A bit sleepy, home to 30,000 people, Netflix, and some good restaurants. But last year, the Los Gatos City Council meetings began to be disrupted by shouting angry protesters, mad about public health policy, the city's general support for queer residents, actually pretty much everything. And in particular, they targeted then-Mayor Mariko Sayak and her family. For example, this happened at the October 5th meeting.
1: I'm Eden Burke, and I'm a resident of Los Gatos. Madam Sayak, you are not God. How dare you force your ideologies on our children? We, the people of Las Gatas, do not consent
3: to the forced mutilation of our bodies, minds, and sovereignty just because your
1: son turned out gay that Schultz not mean
3: Mr. Schultz you this is inappropriate
4: that's how i feel
3: when my son is a minor i have to pull my son from school because he's not
5: safe on the I'm, I'm calling a recess for 5 minutes
0: take a 5 minute recess
2: something began to dawn on local residents their town had a new faction one that had been radicalized online and drew inspiration from QAnon and its descendants. Grace Hazy, a reporter with the San Jose Mercury News, covered what happened in Los Gatos. Welcome to Forum, Grace.
4: Hi, thank you for having me.
2: I mean, I think the first question is, like, where did this all come from? Like, were people at these meetings responding to a specific policy decision, or was it just kind of like public comment would open and then all hell would break loose?
4: Yeah, so, you know, a lot of these individuals started speaking out on the town's diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Um, Mainly uh, last June, there was uh, a decision by the council in order to paint a, uh, you know, crosswalk in the city um, with, you know, rainbow stripes in support of the LGBTQ community. And a lot of these individuals um, took issue with that and started speaking out at these council meetings.
2: And this was, you know, I mean, the Bay Area has some wild public comment periods. Like, you know, you can watch a Berkeley City Council meeting. These went to another level, though, right? I mean, they were disrupting the, the meetings, refusing to respect the kind of rules of, of order of these city meetings. So what did Los Gatos end up doing?
4: Yeah, so there was, you know, several incidences where the meetings really started to escalate into verbal altercations between the public and um, the council. Uh, So there were several occasions around last fall where they had to shut the meetings down, the police were involved, um, they had to clear out the council chambers. um, And it got so bad, actually, at one point that Los Gatos decided to return to meeting on Zoom for a while in order to, you know, avoid these uh, verbal altercations in person.
2: Because they could basically shut the mic off of the person who was zooming in. Correct. So they ended up coming up with a whole bunch of procedures, right, <laughs> that that allow them to sort of roll forward with meetings and, and remove people. Like they, they codified this into, a, I guess, a plan on how to combat this kind of new form of local radicalism.
4: Well, you know, there is a, uh, you know, a new state law now that uh, was recently signed by Governor Gavin Newsom that does deal with this, that, uh, you know, was kind of inspired by uh, what happened in Los Gatos that really clarifies when you can remove an individual who's interrupting a meeting. Yeah.
2: And, you know, have there been lasting repercussions for the city's civic life?
4: You know, from what I've seen, uh the meetings haven't been disrupted as much. I know there were uh, some, you know, concerns uh, or, you know, they brought forward that some people could be permanently banned from meetings Mm -hmm. um, that were, you know, instigating some of this. Uh, But, you know, from what I've seen, they pretty much have returned to normal.
2: Yeah. We were just seeing on Twitter yesterday too, that uh, there are some pretty wild flyers about city council candidates down there in Los Gatos as well. So, We'll have to keep uh, our eyes uh, tuned on that. Thanks so much, uh, Grace Hazy, for joining us this morning and uh, giving us the that the, the inside look at what happened in Los Gatos. Appreciate your time.
4: Thank you so much.
2: And of course, it's not just Los Gatos that has um, QAnon or QAnon-adjacent people disrupting everyday life. This phenomenon metastasized into many different issues and strains as people who were radicalized by a series of posts on a message board by someone who may or may not have been a troll or Mike Flynn or whoever else, set their sights on other issues. Here to discuss how QAnon continued to spread, even if most conservatives now downplay the conspiracy theory, we're joined by Bayan Junam, film producer, creator, and host of QAnon, The Search for Q on Vice TV. Welcome, Bayan. Hi, thanks for having me. We're also joined by his co-creator, Marley Clement, uh, documentary filmmaker, and uh, also worked uh, creating QAnon, The Search for Q. Welcome,
1: Marley. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here, guys. Um, this, you know, I guess the first thing to say is,
2: introduce us again to what QAnon began as, because I think it's important to kind of go, start, start from the beginning so we can see how wild this transition has been.
5: Yeah. Um, so QAnon at the end, towards the end of se- uh, 2017, QAnon came out on uh, a few message boards claiming that they were a government insider who had a direct connection to Trump. And they were starting to proclaim a number of prophecies such as Hillary Clinton and another a number of other uh, Democratic leaders were going to be imprisoned by the following weekend. And it encouraged Anons and people who were part of that group to help kind of crowdsource research that would be an aid of this goal. And that's really where it all started. Um, It was off of the back of something called Pizzagate, um, which was the instance when a man uh, was inspired by conspiracies adjacent to this that were shared by Mike Flynn and Mike Flynn Jr., um, He was inspired enough to drive uh, to Washington, D.C. with an AR-15 and shoot up a pizza parlor. Um, And so I think that was a really early warning of what groups like QAnon were trying to achieve at that time, more broadly organizing under, you know, Donald Trump and that cult of
2: personality that was growing around that. Yeah. And then Q did stop posting. Marley, maybe you can... Talk to us a little bit about the timeline just to get us bring us bring us to, you know, roughly 20 into 2021 from that those er, that early start through the building of the movement.
1: Sure. So with QAnon, they were posting from, as at said, end of 2017 until the final Q drop, uh, as most would see it, was in December 8th, 2020. So about a month before the insurrection. And, uh, you know, they were very active during the Trump years. But we, what we've seen since they've gone quiet in 2020 is that, you know, in many ways, it feels almost as if they've faked their own death. They've allowed themselves to sort of put on this cloak of invisibility and say, we don't You know we're not here anymore. This is there's nothing to point to, and yet leaders within the QAnon community have continued to sort of latch on to several of the main conspiracy theories and push them in different areas. So we see these happening in churches across the country, especially uh, in Christian nationalist evangelical events, where they are pushing many of the same conspiracy theories that Q was originally pushing on the boards. We also see it now. I think the one of the Most, you know, impactful places we are seeing it is in places like Los Gatos, but across the country with uh, sort of mass radicalization, a lot of anger and this disrupting our local communities uh, everywhere. Yeah.
2: So when we talk about these people, I mean, one of the most disturbing things about your documentary series, The Search for Q, is realizing that these people went off the rails during QAnon's posting. But now there's all these infrastructures that are developing to suck them into other movements because people know if they can grab them, they'll have these new loyal foot soldiers. So could you sort of outline, Marley, kind of the the three main kind of groupings that you've seen of kind of descendants of Q?
1: Sure. So this season, we look at th- these three main groupings as uh, COVID conspiracies sort of broadly, uh, Save Our Children, which is the idea that in this satanic cabal of pedophiles is trafficking children around the world, uh, many Democratic leaders and people within the government are a part of this cabal uh, and, and so that, that was sort of the main, one of the main tenets of QAnon. And we've seen that really, they've really run with that in the save our children category that Q has, has metastasized into. Um, so those, so it's save our children, COVID conspiracy and stop the steal, which is the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, very debunked idea that Joe Biden stole the 2020 election and that was a fraudulent election and, uh, and is driving a lot of these events like school board attacks. Yeah. But, you
2: know, my understanding before I had watched your documentary was that after like January 6th kind of was a semi death knell for for QAnon. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case, though, but it did do something to the movement, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a moment where I would say even the folks, many of the folks we talked to within the QAnon community for a short window, I want to say like two months, were like, wow, that was messed up. But in what we've seen in the year since uh, January 6th is the ability to kind of create a narrative that latches on to many of the conspiracies and the communities that Q grew over those Trump years to then shift it to be actually this was an FBI planned event. Antifa infiltrated this riot, these kind of outrageous ideas that, um You know, started spreading around these events and online among the same communities that were organized around Q. And once, uh, you know, churches became more prevalent in a real world place for these once online groups to now organize, we saw a very different level, a different tone uh, take about this community that was more justifying their actions based on the Bible and Mm. God versus, uh, you know, only using Trump in that Mm. situation. And so that was one of the really jarring things is I look at it as a crisis of faith. And Mm. I think many of the Anons and many of the people in the community after January 6th had a crisis of faith. And so, you know, the church kind of welcomed and reinforced many of the conspiracies that, they had been uh and i want to be clear it was just specific you know mega churches around the country that had uh been uh closed during the pandemic and certain pastors had really taken it upon themselves to
2: to uh provide a home for these folks yeah
5: correct Yeah. yeah and and so i think you know i want to be really specific about saying that you know there are just this handful i want to say several dozen around the country that were radicalized through the Um, through the pandemic. And so I think they provided a home for many of the people who didn't know where to go after Q stopped posting. We're
2: talking about the continuing ramifications of QAnon. Stick around for more right after the break.
6: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way,
3: So, I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get
4: wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what happened to QAnon didn't just go away. We're joined by Bayan Junam, film producer, creator, and host of QAnon, The Search for Q, and Marley Clements, documentary filmmaker, host, as well as the other creator of QAnon, The Search for Q. It's on Vice TV. We want to hear from you. Do you have a loved one who became a follower of QAnon? We'd love to hear what they're up to now. Have they come back to you? Have they moved on to one of these other adjacent movements? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And, of course, the the email is forum at kqed.org. Do you have a loved one who who fell into this QAnon trap? And we want to hear what they're up to now. I just wanted to follow up with a comment from one of our listeners. Uh, Michelle writes to say, I had an interaction in September 2020 with this Los Gatos QAnon group with them, doxing my license plate, attacking my workplace in Palo Alto, making hundreds of phone calls and complaining about me to the Board of Registered Nursing after they attacked me with their flagpoles. It was a terrifying and extremely expensive experience. Last week, I went through downtown Los Gatos and pulled down 25 negative flyers detracting from Rob Moore's campaign for the Los Gatos City Council They were full of anti-LGBTQ, homeless, and equity and equality issues. There are multiple shopkeepers in town who've had run-ins with this group. How do we stop these people? It's it's fascinating, uh, Bayana, to think about these local groups because that's also something that your reporting really showed was that individual leaders within this movement have been encouraging people to move off message boards and into local politics, right? Absolutely. We see that at event after event, speaker after speaker,
5: encouraging and instructing, you know, tens of thousands of folks who rally around these QAnon events, spreading conspiracies, anti LGBTQ rhetoric, uh, to go to their school boards. Till, you know, a quote is flip your school boards upside down in the name of God. Um, what of the pastors is quoted saying in our series. And so I think you start to see how these uh, conspiracies are able to localize quickly. And that shifted focus over the last year towards local government, school boards, um, state level elections in order. Because I think that, you know, these groups learned a lot from uh, 2020 and are now looking to take a larger role in the electoral process.
1: And if I could just add to that, I would say that, you know, we see these sort of local attacks as, I would say, part and parcel of a larger attack on American democracy, because it's not just the local assemblies, election workers that are being attacked. These attacks are making it significantly less appealing to run for office or be involved civically, as we heard from, you know, your listener who called in and talked about her experience. Um, And so I think that, you know, a lot of times we sort of forget that these are just Just everyday people who have taken these jobs, they have other jobs and they are just trying to be civically engaged, maybe have some extra time on their hands. And they aren't thinking that they're going to get death threats as part of that. Signing up to serve their community is not the same as signing up to join the Marines. Right. Uh, And I think that, you know, that sort of thing is we're seeing election officials and and other local government officials just resign in mass across the country. And we have to see that as, you know, Who's going to take these positions? Is that by design that these attacks started first or, you know, I, I just don't see this as an organic thing. It feels like it is definitely part of a broader movement to get people like the people who are attacking these school boards on into these offices and run our government. Yeah.
2: And you ran into, Marley, like one of the most extreme examples of this, which is this militia takeover up in Northern California. Can you tell us, I, I, forum listeners may have heard that Mina did a show on this uh, a while back, but just tell us tell us what happened up there.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, what you're talking about is Cottonwood, California. So It's up at Redding. It's Shasta County. It's a beautiful part of California, a deep red district. And what happened is uh, during the pandemic, a lot of these attacks started on the local county supervisors. And they said, we don't want to, you know, listen to Newsom's orders to shut down our schools and our businesses. We're fine. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're not going to do it. And so they really started attacking these county supervisors and eventually started a recall campaign for. The chair of the county supervisors, Leonard Modis, was his name, and he was a longtime Republican, sort of Reagan Republican. And uh, this this campaign was led by the local militia, the Cottonwood Militia, which is a branch of the California militia. And so, you know, there's obviously a degree of intimidation that comes with this being run by, mm-hmm. you know, men cosplaying army, right, and fatigues and standing outside these, you know, voting centers and such, um, and going to schools. And so, uh, you know, there was, there was, it was a really difficult time for the community. And in the end, they were successful in this recall in recalling councilman Modi and were able to put on, uh, a a member of their militia actually onto the, onto the board Mm -hmm. of supervisors. And in doing so now have, majority control the majority is controlled by allies of this militia and so when you think about what that means for the community it's almost this political insurgency because now they not only control the town you know from a kinetic standpoint and from you know intimidation with the militia itself but they also control the local government Mm. uh and so we're not sure what you know state laws will be (laughs) implemented and what what will end up happening so bian and i spent three days there uh to sort of understand this as part of broader political insurgencies. And it, w- it was really a fascinating time. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to be in episode three. And I, I really encourage your Northern California listeners to check that out. Yeah. Uh,
2: let's uh, bring in Rob Moore. Uh, turns out Rob is the candidate who was targeted by those flyers. Thanks for calling in, Rob. Appreciate you.
7: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what is this, what's
2: this been like for you? Can you tell us a little bit more about it?
7: Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely, I would say, surprising when I saw that there were these flyers everywhere. Um, It was uh, really hurtful to see that them specifically targeting the LGBTQ community and and others. And you know, what I will say is that there has been overwhelming support and an outpouring of you know donations and things like that to my campaign, which has been great. So I think you know what this shows is that this is a very small group of individuals who are um, very extreme, uh, but they are not most folks in Los Gatos. So you're running now.
2: You knew that this group existed. You knew that this kind of, you know, that this set of people in your town, however large the group is, has been radicalized and has made life very difficult for other uh, local political figures. Was this something that entered into your mind as you're making your calculations? You're like, sure, I mostly want to focus on putting in bike lanes or whatever you'd like to do, (laughs) but also I'm going to be battling uh, for democratic freedom here.
7: Yeah, it, that actually, that is absolutely something I thought about. You know, I thought about how our mayor was attacked and how, you know, I live on the first floor of a fourplex and, you know, your your address is public information. And so it, it is something I thought about. It's also I think that's the goal of this group is to get, you know, good people out of office and and to not get involved in the local government to be able to and to be able to put their preferred people in and and so i think it actually is just all the more reason why i think it's important that um that i decided to run in this race yeah
2: um hey anything else you want to add about what it's kind of done to the town to have like a group of people who've kind of been just you know openly and actively this angry not just disrupting the meetings but just so angry in, you know, around city council issues in a town of 30,000 people?
7: Yeah, I'll just say that the last year after a lot of this happened, after those city council meetings, we um, uh, helped organize the United Against Hate March, where about 3,000 people from around the town came together Mm -hmm. to show solidarity with um, our black and brown neighbors, our LGBTQ friends. and, uh, And I think that it really has, in some ways, brought a larger portion of the community together. There are obviously these hateful individuals that are going to keep, um, you know, kind of spewing. But I think the the people in town recognize that that's a real fringe group and that we, you know, writ large, we really all are working towards a more thriving, a more beautiful version of our town. Yeah.
2: Hey, thanks uh, so much, uh, Rob, for that call. Really appreciate you uh, filling us in on this. The goings on down there um but i wanted to you know maybe you want to react to that um just just hearing about the the local group but i also wondered if you could start to break down sort of why QAnon specifically why this group of people why you think this has had the power that it has to just take people in los gatos and who, who had not been involved in politics and suddenly they're this organized group
5: Yeah, absolutely. So first to react. I mean, I just I agree with everything that was said in terms of the organization and intent of groups like this uh, to disrupt local politics so that they can make it as unattractive as possible for, you know, well minded citizens, uh, publicly minded citizens to engage in that process. So completely aligned and also aligned on the fact that this is a small but loud minority of Of folks. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think Twitter oftentimes and social media makes it seem like the loudest voice is the majority. But this is just a case of, you know, uh, a small fraction of communities around the country who are, you know, really upset and making sure that they're doing going to city council meetings, going and making their voices heard. Um, And I think that is a a challenge that I don't think we we had anticipated coming off of the digital part of this organization that we saw during the Trump years. Um, And so I guess to break down the the really ephemeral and challenging question, what are they mad about? Um, Well, I think it's, and I want to say that, you know, this isn't something that we've only seen on the far right wing. We've also seen this among far- left progressives is just I think Americans have a lot of grievances today with the way that things are run. Maybe it's the economic situation, maybe it's international policy. uh, And I think those grievances are often taken advantage of by groups like QAnon. And we've seen that happen not just in the United States, but around the world. And I think it's part of I think QAnon is part of an insurgency. I think we speak with somebody in our series, Barbara Walter, who uh, wrote uh, a guidebook into how insurgencies are built and the three stages of them. And the first stage is a group like QAnon starts to organize and articulate a set of grievances. And we saw that really clearly happening over the Trump years. I think Trump was the biggest mouthpiece for Americans to organize around this set of grievances and online that was QAnon um, in channels like the Donald on Reddit, which eventually fed into 8chan. So I think the second stage of that insurgency is recruitment from former law enforcement and military veterans. And, you know, it's estimated that up to 10 percent of the people who participated in uh, January 6th in the insurrection were former law enforcement or veteran or active military which is a shocking number it should shock everybody that that many people uh who are trained uh by the greatest military in the world are now actively organizing against it um and the third stage which i think we are dangerously close to and i think it depends on who you ask is a consistent series of attacks um and you know, January 6th was clearly a watershed moment. Prior to that, six days or six or seven days, uh, there was a massive suicide bomb in Nashville where a gentleman motivated by 5G conspiracy theories drove into the into downtown Nashville and um, blew up, you know, himself in this RV and took down a good section of that block. Uh, we've learned that in 2021, there has been, it has been the most active criminal year for Q-inspired acts of violence and crime. Mm -hmm. And so I do think we are getting dangerously close to that third stage of the insurgency, which is why I think, you know, understanding and and watching, you know, our show hearing directly from the Anons about what are those grievances and seeing how quickly they can be adjusted and shifted by those in power people who are creating the fear to then capitalize on whether politically or financially um there's no one answer but i hope to be able that our series is able to provide a a a process that we believe uh that you know anon in this move the anons in this movement are following
2: yeah let's uh bring in christopher from modesto welcome christopher
0: Hey, thank you for uh, having this topic brought to light. And sorry for the background noise. Um, Yeah, my dad's a military veteran. And around the time of the 2016 election, and a lifelong Democrat, I should say, he really got pulled into a lot of the q and conspiracies, uh, a lot of it just getting it from online. Um, but it wasn't until the January 6th events because I had talked to him for years about sort of a weirdness of his research and how it really didn't hold a lot of truth. But after January 6th and what he saw and what was happening to the law enforcement that were trying to Mm -hmm. defend, you know, the transfer of power, it really had a tremendous effect on him. And it really that really sort of cracked open his sort of veneer of thinking that, and he admitted this later on, that it was a lot of white grievance that he mm-hmm. felt that things were being taken away from him, when the reality of it was, is that America is a pie that gets bigger and bigger, and there is always more for more people. But it took a lot for my dad to get through that. But January 6th was definitely the watershed moment for him.
2: Hey, thank you so much, Chris. I'm glad you uh, have your dad back, too. That's good news. Um, you know, Marla, I wanted to ask you, you know, it's it's kind of a subtext of your of your film, the white grievance that has powered, you know, and you've seen people like Bart Gelman in The Atlantic pointing to this as like one of the major, you know, there are sociologists who've been studying this, that this is one of the major things driving, uh, at least the openness to violence, uh, political violence in this country. Um, how did you see that playing out in all the different places, all different spaces where you ended up for this documentary series?
1: I think we definitely see that in, in in very in a lot of places, you know, buy referenced reference that they had a mouthpiece in Donald Trump for these grievances. And, and I think one of the really tragic things about this movement was they saw him as this populist leader uh, and and the idea that he was going to bring jobs back to America and things like that. And it's this faux populism that gives this idea that, you know, essentially becomes you know, white nationalism, right? Mm-hmm. So it very, very quickly devolves into a place where this is for, we are doing this for the white Americans, you know, heteronormative Americans and their families, family values, things like that. And that's where you see the church sort of come into play. But I think that a lot of people, you know, with the white grievance issues are really seeing What's being taken away from them? I'm doing air quotes here for your listeners, but uh, yeah, what's being taken away from them is really just like 21st century, like things being things being digitized. The you know absolute 40 year campaign to kill the American labor movement, right? Mm-hmm. Things that have allowed people to historically prosper are changing with the times, and that is something that is super easy for, as Bynes said, leaders to come in and. And weaponize uh, against against our fellow Americans. Um, And we see this as sort of almost, you know, ethnic entrepreneurship, right? There is money to be made in this. There is uh, there's also power to be had from it. And I think that, you know, continuing to weaponize, continuing to cause chaos and feed into these notions that just are untrue uh, as Fortunately, your listeners father, you know, discovered eventually, but continuing to feed that in and then and siloing their information ecosystems where they are stuck there and they're constantly being fed this. It's really hard to get out. Um,
2: Yeah, we're talking about what happened to the QAnon baseless conspiracy theory and the people who became its adherents. We're joined by Marley Clements, documentary filmmaker, co-creator, co-host of QAnon, The Search for Q and Bayan Junam, her co-creator and co-host. We do. We're hearing from you, too. Do you have a loved one who became a follower of the QAnon conspiracy theory? And what are they up to now? Have they come back to you uh, like some people or have they transferred their allegiance to a a new uh, kind of radical cause? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or KQED Forum or the emails forum at KQED.org. Stay tuned for more with the creators of QAnon, the search for Q.
6: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure...
3: So, I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the
4: Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how QAnon metastasized into local politics and other movements. With Bayan Junam... Film producer, co creator and co host of QAnon, and Marley Clements, also co creator co host of QAnon, The Search for Q. That's on uh, Vice TV. It's got a new uh, season out. Uh, Marley, I wanted to um, throw a couple of these listener uh, comments to you. Um, Pedmini writes How many people are actually followers of QAnon? Percentage of California or national population? And what has the role of the GOP been in promoting the conspiracy? Sort of, so maybe maybe some skepticism there. Jorge, outright skepticism. Jorge writes, uh, "QAnon is nothing more than a made-up comic book full of rumors and innuendo." Jorge, I think we all agree on that. In the past, everything needed to be confirmed, but now the media and people like your guests and nuts reading the comic book want everyone else to read the comic books. Just call it out as a bunch of lies. There is no QAnon quote community. End of story. And the the question out of this, Marley, is. I, I have worried through time about providing any oxygen or, or talking about QAnon or with Q, because it just feels like there is a danger maybe in, in making people think that there's like a there are there. So how obviously you've made a whole documentary series about it. Why did you feel like it was necessary to reckon with this phenomenon and how widespread is this kind of belief, particularly in one of our major political parties?
1: Like absolutely, I think that is something that we should all be thinking about twenty first century media responsibility and and thinking about what we do give it air to. Uh, I have taken that very seriously. Brian and I both have, and in the end, I think that you know these questions. There's two questions: how how widespread it is, and and how we report on it. And I think that they are sort of part of the same question because, or the same answer for me, rather, because. It is so widespread. There are a lot of different estimates on this, but many of them come in around, you know, 20 percent of the American population. And I think that, you know, you've you've been asking your ended up believing some in.
2: piece. Right. End up believing some some of the key tenants of this thing.
1: Sure, believe right. key tenants of it, which which I do think allows them to radicalize further. Right, if you can latch on to one of the key tenants, that's really all a big um big tent conspiracy theory like QAnon is looking for you to do is just to latch on to part of this, and then therefore something else that gets thrown your way that might seem insane that you wouldn't otherwise you know normally believe. It's easier for you to latch on to that. It's easier for you to sign up to sc- storm your school board uh, because you think that your your life's. Threatened, being threatened. Uh, And so this is a sort of a a very loud minority, as Brian said. They like to consider themselves the silent majority. They are not either one of those things, silent nor a majority. But I think that, you know, we've seen them continue to grow even after the queue stopped posting. And I think that, you know, you've asked your listeners to call in with family members or think people who have fallen down. I have very I've met very few people in the last couple of years who don't have a friend or family member who's been fallen, who's fallen into this. And so what Brian and I believe that we are doing in going into these communities and talking to these people is trying to figure out how we can talk to them. What is the common ground? Because a lot of the grievances they claim to have are, yes, based on lies, disinformation, not just misinformation, which is sort of, you know, confusion around something or misspeaking or something. This is disinformation that was fed to them to radicalize them uh, for this purpose. And it's going to continue to spread. It's already a very large amount of people in the United States and so and across the globe. And so I think learning to understand what what can you say to them? What how does this work? How do we off-ramp this mm-hmm. is the only way that we're going to be able to pull ourselves back from, you know, a lot of conversation about Things we never thought we'd hear in America, like civil war, right now, and this group with violent tendencies and a lot of anger uh, are going to be a large part of something like that if it were to happen. And I think figuring out how to, you know, see them as people uh, who have been intentionally radicalized, intentionally hurt, and and brought into this is is a way for us to figure out how to just live in our neighborhoods and have neighbors and family, friends, whatever, who are involved in this, which we're going to continue to see.
5: Uh, Can I just uh, add to that as well? I just want to say that, you know, leading up to January 6th, we heard a lot of this same commentary. Why are we focusing on this fringe internet thing that is, you know, rooted in lies? Absolutely. And I think January 6th should have been a wake-up call for all of us to start focusing on what led, you know, something like this, not just Trump to do what he did, but all of the people who came from around the country. They didn't just come because of one single tweet. They came because a result of a multi-year radicalization campaign. And that campaign is not unique to America. So if we continue ignoring the growing insurgency that's happening, although it is a minority, that minority can have devastating impact in our communities. Mm -hmm. And I don't think ignoring it is an acceptable way to deal with it. I think we can look at patterns around the world around insurgencies like this to give us an answer of where we're headed and Marley and I really want to try engaging in this conversation in a way that we haven't seen uh done which is you know asking the questions of why. Um why has this appealed when,
2: on its face, it seems so
1: outrageous? It seems so
2: ridiculous, and I think that's
5: really
1: ridiculous.
2: What happened? I mean, the the when I first started reading about QAnon, I just I just you know a, a part of my brain would just fritz out at how absolutely ridiculous it seemed. I mean, where Pizzagate first happened, you know, one of the kind of you know inciting moments of this whole thing. Like I've been to that pizza place. It's like it's like if you went to Zachary's Pizza. This is like an East Bay reference for people, or just like the most anodyne pizza place in a na- suburban neighborhood, and shot it up, um, and yet the thing has has had this incredible power. I, I want to bring in um, Chewy in San Rosa. Hey, Chewy. Uh, hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, Hi, sure can. can. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead.
5: Oh, sorry. I just wanted to add that uh my sister uh, became part of the QAnon movement unfortunately uh, a few years ago when you know when the pandemic was surging and um I
7: believe that her thread into this was her being an evangelical mm-hmm. um when she converted to um the Church of Christ and all that and by no means am I saying that everybody who's a member of that is just like this but it seemed there were a lot of through lines there so I just I guess wanted to ask if your if your guests had anything to
2: comment on that yeah oh man do they this is like a central focus of of their of their documentary series I don't know which of you wants to take it but we haven't talked about the reawaken movement which feels really like the nexus of this QAnon stuff and evangelical movements
5: absolutely I would love to comment on that and I think what uh, your listener had pointed out Chewy was is part of a pattern. I think that we're seeing across the country uh, when Q went dark. Uh, I think the uh, what we're referred to as the digital soldiers uh, had a crisis of faith, uh, which led them oftentimes to organize in church-like environments. Um, we also saw that pastors uh, and leaders of spiritual communities were as susceptible to these conspiracy theories as everybody else. And so I think for uh, reasons that I guess we get into a lot of, uh, you you know, we see this uh, alliance between Mike Flynn, a few of his patrons, like Mike Lindell and Patrick Byrne, suddenly engaging with the church, you know, the evangelical church. And I think I think about these mega churches, right, of Billy Graham, these stadiums that have 10,000 seats. They are going around the country on this Reawaken tour, which is kind of a political and spiritual rally, uh, inviting all of the people who followed QAnon under this white revival tent uh, that are put up. And then you see like thousands of people uh, show up who are fed this mix of, Biblical interpretation, sometimes you know, referencing Trump as the second coming of King Cyrus. And so you start to see these like biblical uh interpretations that are somewhat odd and politically motivated, political candidates who come on and explain, you know, what they're going to do in order to like impeach Biden. Um, and then you have, you know, General Mike flynn coming on and telling people that we're engaged in spiritual warfare.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Um and, and so I think when you go to a place like a church and you are expecting spiritual guidance, you're expecting to gain values and compassion, what we're seeing today is people are going to church and especially these evangelical mega churches that are hosting reawaken events and becoming radicalized with the same conspiracies that Q spread.
1: If I could just pop in on that real quick, because as you said, we do focus on this quite a bit. So if just quickly on that, I think that this is also part of this broader trend towards Christian nationalism that we're seeing in the country, this idea that this notion that they're attaching them to America as a nation, as a a Christian nation, right? And that being part of our founding and our constitution, which of course is, you know, Part of many of the pieces of disinformation fed here, this is nowhere in our constitution. Uh, and we, you know, freedom of religion should be part of, you know, freedom from religion, but that is not included in these doctrines that are being pushed in these mega churches. And one of this, the episode that airs tonight at 10 p.m. on Vice is specifically focused on this. And we talked to one of the, wildest, you know, revivalist Christian nationalist preachers you can imagine in Tennessee. We also talked to a gentleman from a pastor from Michigan who's been k- run out of his church. He's lost his entire p- parish because mm. he, he he wouldn't go along with the QAnon theories. And, and his uh, parishioners really rallied against him and kicked him out. And his family, is, his life has been turned upside down. Uh, and we talked to him a lot about what the idea of christianity is to him and and what role it plays in this country and i think that it's it's really eye opening uh to to see how this is going to continue to play out and i think this is something that many pastors across the country actually are are too scared to talk about but the, but it's a real concern for for churches everywhere you know Marla,
2: you talked to some social scientists and and folks who study both you know kind of insurgencies political violence other things in the in the series what did you glean from them on sort of how de-escalation happens. You know, Brian mentioned earlier that, you know, this is not unique to the United States. There are strain, there have been these movements uh, across the globe through time, uh, radicalized around religion or uh, ethnicity, racial things. There's, there's a lot of different ways these things can be organized, but they do have some common features. So where do, where do people start with de-radicalizing folks like this and and de-escalating what you see happening?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that happens on a lot of different levels, you know, ar- around the globe. Uh, I think, first of all, one of the reasons we make this show is because it is really important to understand this as part of a pattern. To see this as there is a science to the way insurgencies, civil wars, things like this happen, division in countries happen. And and to recognize those uh, it, is really important to being able to avoid it, which is why we've... <laughs> Spent the year traveling around to mega churches, having conversations with people I I typically would not find myself in conversation with. Uh, and so, I think that you know, first of all, education recognizing that. Secondly, there's there's certainly things at a legislative level that can be done. I think it's this uh, SB eleven hundred that has just been passed by Governor Newsom and the California Assembly. I think is really important to to sort of stop that in its tracks. The attacks on these school boards, the attacks on these local government because, it, you know, it, to not allow it to advance will continue to keep people in office, will continue to pe- keep people safe, feel safe enough to run and for local office and be involved civically in their communities, which is really important and something that I think hopefully will set a precedent for other states around the country. I also think, you know, at the legis- at the federal legislative level, I think the biggest thing that could be done is get money out of politics like it's just stop let's actually deal with the grievances uh, and and give people a voice back um and so that that's actually very important and then i think on a personal level bion's actually very good at this bion if you want to talk about sort of just how to interact
2: yeah, and let me let me read a listener comment. And you can uh, react to that one as well. Peter writes, "My wife's sister's family got into QAnon. We used to consider them liberals, like the rest of us. We were very close. Now we're split. The best we can do is polite conversation. They were pro-Trump, became virulent anti-vaxxers and anti-mask mandate. They scoffed and ignored our COVID concerns around family gatherings." They've transferred their opposition to focus on Governor Newsom, blaming him for any COVID-related inconveniences, as if he were evil for supporting public health policy. I can't say if they are, quote, coming back to us. We don't talk about anything important other than how their son is doing in school and safe subjects like that. Bayan?
5: Um, Dear listener, you are doing everything exactly right. Uh, Hold faith. You know, we have actually... I want to talk about this journey because I think in in season one, when we first started doing this, you know, this idea that we really just wanted to understand and not really confront any of the conspiracies that we were hearing was something that we um, pursued and we got a great ability to understand. But what we also started to realize is there was a responsibility once we understood it to start confronting these ideas, especially in front of leadership. However, what we learned this season, is that it's really hard to change somebody's mind especially today you know there's never going to be any facebook conversation or twitter conversation that you're going to have where someone will walk away from it and say you, you know what? what they're not yeah. eating babies yeah exactly I've, I've changed my whole world view you know and, and largely right now people's political identity is becoming more and more a part of their kind of core identity especially folks who are radicalized so I think that, you know, the situation is one where it takes years of respect uh, and, and relation- it takes years of a relationship being built and respect, uh, going back and forth in order to actually break through to somebody like your listener's friend. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a slow process um, in order to do that. There will be a day where Donald Trump isn't around anymore there will be a day where all of this is gone. And we need to make sure that folks who have been radicalized still are tethered to friends and family who aren't wrapped up in all of this. They still remember who they were before Donald Trump came around and all of these conspiracies. And so my suggestion to your listener is to continue reminding your friends who they were before all of this politics became front and center and keep focusing on... You know, your kids, the common ground, reminding them, too, that we on the other side are human beings as well. We aren't evil, thoughtless, you know, sheep as they would like us like to see us. So I think continuing to engage in that conversation on a polite level is the best that we can do right now in order to wait for that moment where maybe your friend's going to see that, you know, some of these lies, some of these prophecies aren't coming true. And that's an opportunity to yeah. begin a real conversation about what you're disagreeing on today.
2: I mean, one of the most chilling things in your documentary, Marley, was a, a, a snippet of a preacher talking about how the Lord was isolating these people and that they would be called upon to, you know, cleanse their communities just because it it it, it was so aware of the fact that many people have been isolated by these extreme beliefs from their families, from their communities, and it was. A way of preparing them to use that isolation to become even more radical. So scary, Marley. Um, Marley, yeah. Uh, how do people watch your your documentary? Just as we uh, wrap up the show here,
1: absolutely. Uh, it's on Vice TV. It comes out on Wednesdays tonight. It will air. Uh, the second episode will air tonight at ten p.m. Uh, first episode came out last week. That's available to your listeners on YouTube as well. Uh, but Vice TV, anywhere you can. You know, tune into that, that that'll be there. Uh, It also Hulu live and Philo, I believe, uh, live sling. Those are all options for those of uh, your listeners who have caught the cord.
2: Well, we really appreciate the reporting you all have done watching that documentary series. As a fellow reporter, I have to tell you, I would not want to have been in a lot of the situations you found yourself in. We have been talking about what happened to QAnon and the way it's metastasized into local life and other political movements. We have been joined by Marley Clements and Bayan Junam. They are the co-creators and co-hosts of QAnon, The Search for Q, which, as you heard, is on Vice TV. Thank you so much for joining us, you two.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. The Vice TV documentary series QAnon, The Search for Q
2: airs Wednesday evenings with a new episode tonight, and they go on YouTube. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Our listeners, I hope you get all your people back. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, and the Bernard
6: Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum.
3: Even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall to wall Wi
4: Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
7: Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it.